Welcome to Living Downstream. I'm your host, Steve Mencher. This season, we are looking at environmental racism across the country, and today that takes us to the sugarcane and oil-rich region at the intersection of southern Louisiana and the Gulf of Mexico, Iberia Parish, Louisiana. In this episode, we'll hear from people who say they're fighting over something that their families have already fought for generations to maintain, wealth. In this case, we're talking about land, what grows on it, and what lies under it. We'll hear from Robbie Bethel, a longtime resident of the city of New Iberia. She claims an energy company pulled oil from her property and never paid her family any royalties. There's injustice going in this community and people tired. We'll also hear from black sugarcane farmers who say it's become impossible to stay in their industry. These farmers describe the racism that affects their minds and bodies. Gulf States Newsroom regional healthcare reporter Shalina Chatlani takes the story from here. I first meet Robbie Bethel in person at her home in West End, a neighborhood in the city of New Iberia. She's a longtime resident and community activist here. Hi, so good to meet you. I know, I know, good to meet you too. Yes, we can do it, all of them? Yes. Pandemic style? Yes, yes. (laughs) We sit down in her living room and she starts to tell me about her hometown. Every southern town, if you want to find the most depressed, the most disenfranchised community, the poorest community, you look for a railroad track. A five-minute drive away, there are sushi restaurants, high-end clothing stores, flower shops. Here in this predominantly black neighborhood, there's broken down housing, potholes, slanted porches, kids walking the street in tattered clothes. But it wasn't always this way. It was where um, 60, 90 mostly Black-owned businesses were located. Mom-and-pop eateries, nightclubs. But by the mid-1900s, Bethel says West End had seen major disinvestment and rapidly declined. Today, the neighborhood lacks basic resources, like grocery stores. Poverty is high, so is crime. During our interview, I could even hear unsettling sounds right outside the door. Bethel says her neighborhood feels like a metaphor for her life. Like other Black families, it's been hard for hers to break the cycle of financial insecurity. It's ironic because her family should have been set up to succeed. In the late 1800s, her ancestors had come to own 23 acres of land. So out in the parish of Iberia, there's a little place called Bell Place. And my dad was raised out there, and his grandfather owned property. But something happened. Iberia Parish became the site of massive oil and gas operations in the early 1900s. And Bethel claims the Texas Company, which became Texaco and today is part of Chevron, 
started drilling on her family's land, and her family never saw a penny from it. The oilmen started coming in, and through the years, people just robbed my grandfathers, my dad and them, and now they're my dad's children and, you know, descendants of what is rightfully theirs. Fighting back wasn't possible. That was in a time of Jim Crow, segregation, a hard time for blacks. There was a lot at play. Her family wasn't just up against the oil company, but also wealthy and prominent white families next door, she says. Bethel claims one family, the Romeros, cut deals with the oil company behind her family's back. Based on estimates from the 1930s, even with minimal oil drilling, the oil company could have paid out royalties of around $2,000 a year. Bethel shows me a stack of court records and old family documents. This right here, supposedly a royalty deed that my dad, Melvin Carrier, supposedly gave Mayor Romero all the royalties from their property for $10. She points to the signature from the look of it and what she says, it's forged. It's hard not to believe her. One government map of Iberia Parish shows several dozen abandoned oil wells where there was once clearly a large oil field. But Bethel says there's other evidence. We get into the car. It's hot and wet outside. Bethel is directing me to drive along the edge of the thin and winding Bayou Tesh, about 20 minutes from her home. In the middle of muddy woods, we find an oil well with a rocking pump. This one is active, but when I walk around, I see it's surrounded by ancient and defunct pumps from decades ago. This well is just a couple miles from where her land is situated. All back here, there was wells that was just um, lights, uh, gas, uh, fire, where my grandmother had to live. As Bethel tells me what happened to her family, I start to see that there's more to the story. For her, it's not just about theft or loss of wealth. It's about her health. The mental stress takes a toll on the physical. When you can't sleep because your mind is racing 24-7 and you have to take Advil PM to shut it down. Do you, do you see this happening with other people here in West End? A lot of people have lost hope. And there's injustice going in this community, disenfranchisement, um, discrimination, and people tired. Bethel's journey isn't over, but we'll hear more about that later.
Her story, while unique, is all too familiar for many black families in Iberia Parish. Just 20 minutes away from her home, I meet Eddie Lewis III, a fifth-generation sugarcane grower from Youngsville, Louisiana. <laughs> I am so totally in the deep south right now. <laughs> you are. Matter of fact, the Gulf of Mexico is 15 minutes that way, and you're going to go right off the map. We meet in the middle of a field on a sugarcane farm, the tall, sugary rods hitting each other in the wind. That's like an, my, an infectious to, sound. Welcome to my office. The cane goes on for what looks like miles. Lewis says his family acquired this land over the last century by creating leases with white property owners, from sharecropping a few acres in the 1920s to farming nearly 4,000 at its peak. We may have been working uh, for uh, white landowners and maybe when we parted ways more on the, on the business side and left the sharecropping, there was a relationship in there. Um, they made us nice deals. Lewis's dad had a stroke in the middle of his sugarcane field and passed away about a decade ago at the age of 49. Lewis quit his job as a stockbroker to take over the business. And the money has been good. Lewis's family is able to produce millions of pounds of sugar a year. But Lewis says he's been worried about those leases. We maintain a lot of generational wealth through the leases on the land. We still have those relationships with the landowners, and we're still able to grow massive amounts of sugarcane. With new generations of wealthier white farmers deciding to get into the industry, Lewis says it's been hard to continue securing leases. So at our peak, we were probably north of 3,500 acres. Now we're, we're shy of about 2,000 right wow. now. Yeah, so, we, so your land is almost cut in half. Yeah, and if, you know, if what's going on... And it's not easy to own the land either. His family only owns 250 acres. Not much to fall back on if more leases vanish. With all the the new white farmers in the area and the, the competition, you, you become automatic bait whenever you're an African-American farmer in a predominantly uh, white, uh, white territory or white community. Lewis claims a white farmer took over one of his leases with about $230,000 worth of crop on it. He says he hasn't gotten the money back. How did he steal your crop? He went up to the landowner and told the landowner he was going to pay me well for my crops and he took over my crops and illegally went down to the Foreign Service Agency, sold them a lease contract and put his name on my crop and stole it. Lewis says this financial hit has major consequences. It means he can't buy that piece of equipment that could help him get a better yield. So he might lose another lease with another property owner who thinks they could do better with someone else. And Lewis says there isn't an easy fix for financial setbacks like that either. He claims the U.S. Department of Agriculture hasn't been helpful and has actually contributed to his losses. It all starts with the USDA. When you go down to borrow money, you're supposed to be borrowing a million dollars and they give you 200000 When you start losing land, yields go down, they force your yields down. It's all political. Have you heard, are you like in touch with any black families that have lost their land? Oh yeah, there's the, there's the Provost family right down the road. I'm going to see them tomorrow. Uh, yeah, same, same thing, you know, this is, this is the same story. But this is, this is the last of the stories. There's no one else that has any more stories. 
Uh, yeah, and I keep bringing up the health issue because I'm trying to show that it like goes beyond yeah. the wealth. Yeah. Do you feel like this is literally killing you? Yeah. Honestly, yeah. Tell me more about that. Uh, I mean, my dad died doing what he loved. This is I don't I don't have any other. This is my ambition. I want to become the best sugarcane grower in in America. This is this is all I know. All providing for my family. I don't want to do anything else, you know? So this is, this is all I have, you know? Yeah. Down the street, June and Angie Provost live on the small amount of farmland they have left. They once had leases to farm 5,000 acres of land. Between what they own and what's contracted today, now they farm less than 100 acres. Here's June. It still hurts to see you know, farmers right now in the field planting sugarcane, and I don't have that that opportunity anymore because it was taken from me. The provosts are fourth generation farmers. June has even won awards for it. Now that legacy is all but gone. He says they've faced vandalism, fraud, and bad contracts. Like Eddie Lewis, June and Angie Provost were hoping to see some relief from the USDA a debt relief program for farmers of color in the 2021 American Rescue Plan would have helped tremendously. But those payments are stalled. 12 white farmers filed a lawsuit against the USDA for the program, citing discrimination. It's it's a slow death. I mean, because since we've spoken out, I mean, so many other Black farmers around this area, you know, came to us literally crying and saying, you know, similar happened to them. Enslaved people helped to build the economy and the infrastructure that is the Louisiana sugarcane economy. And so it's it's a hard thing um, to live through day to day. That's Angie Provost. Both Eddie's father and June's father has passed away at a very early age. I am so concerned that My husband won't make it to the age of 70. I'm I'm scared to see my wife like this. I'm scared to see how how she's in in, in so much of depression right now. Because, I mean, I was in that stage a few years ago. You know, I I contemplated suicide. So it's, it's, I, I know how difficult it could be. After hearing accounts from Bethel, Lewis, and the provost, I'm struck by how similar they sound and how much the racism embedded within their environments and the financial insecurity from it has been harming their health. Looking at the data, it's clear that there are many in Iberia Parish dealing with both poverty and poor health. Census data from 2019 shows that in Iberia Parish, about 33% of Black residents live with incomes below the poverty line. That's three times higher than white residents. And when it comes to health, the Centers for Disease Control show that Black residents in Iberia Parish die of heart disease at a higher rate than white residents. Some experts have been looking for a closer link between wealth, health, and race. Thomas Mitchell of Texas A&M University is a property lawyer and researcher. He says at the turn of the 20th century, most wealthy African Americans were landowners. Through what I think can only be described as sheer determination and heroic effort 
African-Americans acquired somewhere between 16 and 20 million acres of land from the closing stages of the Civil War until about 1910 or 1920. Many formerly enslaved people gained land after the Civil War, either through grants or by becoming sharecroppers and slowly earning enough to buy property. But by the end of the 20th century, all the land they had amassed went down from 20 million to around 7 million acres. Other government estimates suggest ownership is even less, at just 2 million acres. Through extra-legal means in terms of lynching and violence and intimidation, there's just been an incredible sapping of generational uh, wealth. Mitchell is part of a research team that's trying to put a dollar amount on this loss. I mean, the number we have is a preliminary estimate of just the value of the land itself is $300 billion. $300 billion. For context, that's more than the GDP of many countries, like New Zealand or Portugal. And truly, he says, the loss of wealth is likely much more. Today, black farmers only represent 1.4% of the over 3 million farmers in the United States. Since the 1920s, that's a drop from nearly a million black farmers to around 50,000. Today, they own just around half a percent of farmland in the country. Land and property loss can be attributed to issues like predatory loans, bad legal advice, fraudulent documents, and for many, a lack of credit offered by public and private entities. After decades of denying that the USDA discriminated against black farmers, they came clean and said, actually, we did discriminate against black farmers uh, for decades. I reached out to the USDA for comment, but they did not get back to me. I asked Mitchell if there was any way to quantify all of this. He said, think about it this way. Less money means fewer people going to college, buying a house, living in a good neighborhood with access to healthy food. All of these issues are central to, you know, economic opportunity. Also, these things can lead to poor health outcomes if, you know, these communities are also grappling with those challenges. They have a direct connection um, to the ability to, to lead healthy and secure lives. Jamila Taylor is a health and economics researcher at the Century Foundation, a progressive think tank. She says racism is still embedded in a lot of American institutions. For example, she says banks continue a historic pattern of discriminating against Black families who apply for a mortgage. The daily experience of racism and structural inequality has a wear and tear on the body. And because of the experience of, of racism, having to, to deal with that, um, they're also more susceptible to disease. I've seen this firsthand throughout my reporting in the COVID-19 pandemic. Black and brown communities have been most likely to be susceptible to the virus, less likely to be able to have the resources to stay at home and miss work, or to even have a job where transmission isn't high. Stress, hypertension, heart attacks, strokes, even contemplating suicide. These are issues that Bethel, Lewis, and the provost say they or members of their family have dealt with. I don't know what a real day of just relaxing is. My dad had never been on a vacation. He had never been on an airplane. Because there's no way that someone can have the ability to succeed if you are facing the same stresses that we are as Black people. 
Back in Iberia Parish, Lewis takes me out to another part of his farm. Yeah, you can hop in with me. Okay, great. The gun is not loaded. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, for, it's for rat snakes. You see all kinds of stuff in this sugar cane. We drive about 10 minutes away from his home. He stops in the middle of a field where a tractor is plowing his land and then points out the window. Right across the street from where he's planted his crop is the land he used to farm, now being worked by a white farmer. Look at my sugar cane and look at his sugar cane. Doesn't that look about the same? Yeah. It's the same, right? Same length, same crop. The landowner gonna make the same amount of money. So that's the things that we fight. The only difference, he says, is who's farming it. The history and the statistics speak for themselves. Black landowners and black farmers have been discriminated against for generations, and likely still are. But I wanted to hear from the other side. I tried meeting Ryan Dore, one of the farmers both Lewis and the provost claim has taken their land. He didn't want to talk to me in person, but I did get him on the phone. He just right. said some things that I thought maybe you might want to respond to. There's a reason that he's losing land, we're taking the land, okay? But I don't, have, I don't need to respond to anything. At least there are already some news reports. In the New York Times 1619 Project podcast, looking at the legacy of slavery in America, Dore doesn't deny that he acquired land Lewis once worked. He says the reason why Lewis and the provost are losing the land is not predatory or a black and white issue. Instead, he claims they're bad farmers. But Dory has had help to get where he is. His story was included in a 2017 episode of This Week in Louisiana Agriculture, a TV program produced by the Louisiana Farm Bureau Federation. And they said, no, we want to give you the chance to farm. So we need a yes or no answer and we need it pretty quick. So I said, yeah, I'll go ahead and do it. And, um, you know, with, with no financial backing or no money in my back pocket, I didn't know. I said, well, I told him, yeah, but now I need a, I don't know where I'm going to get the money from. It didn't matter. Ryan now had 700 acres to farm. Since March of 2008, when Ryan established Dore Farms, he's grown the operation to include about 2,100 acres spread between Iberia, Vermilion, and Lafayette parishes. Why? Why? Why wasn't I offered the same thing? The provosts say they've been doing this for generations, and they still don't get that same type of help, which white farmers do from banks or local sugar mills. Those can help farmers get land or equipment. White farmers will tell you, or someone um, that's heading a sugar mill or a manager of one of these businesses will tell you that farming is hard. But ask yourself, what does that mean? Does that mean that farming is hard for Black people? I had my own farm, and I could get barely any resources. June Provost even filed a lawsuit against a local bank for fraudulently tampering with his loan applications. That federal lawsuit was settled in June 2021. But they are still involved in a state lawsuit against a local sugar mill. White farmers in the area generally declined interviews saying race and farming is a touchy subject. But one person agreed to speak to me, Louisiana State Senator Brett Alon. About 30 minutes outside of New Iberia, I make it to St. Mary Parish. Down a long road, all I can see is sugarcane. And in the middle of that, a tiny house, Senator Alon's office. 
I was overwhelmed by the amount of sugar cane I saw when I drove in here. Is that all yours? Uh, well, not all of it. I farm uh, about 5,000 acres here in the area. Alon has been serving in the state Senate for 10 years. He's on the League of Sugarcane Farmers and once served on the Louisiana Agriculture Finance Authority, which formed in the 80s to address lack of credit availability for farmers. His family has been farming sugarcane since it was introduced to Louisiana hundreds of years ago. We first came over here as French military, and the French at the time didn't have a whole lot of money to pay uh, people, so they paid them in land. Uh, and that's how we got started in agriculture. Alon says he's fortunate. His family owns 60% of the land he farms, but for most other farmers, the land is leased. And he's only lost bits and pieces of leased land over the years, he says. But what about the disadvantaged farmers I spoke to? Why are they losing the land? Well, nobody encroaches. I mean, it's, I mean the landowner has a choice. If his farmer is not producing as well as he should, or, or thinks somebody else could make him more money, then he'll move from one farmer to the other. I've seen a lot of farmers over the year, white, black, whatever, that have gone out of business. Do you think it's not like a systemic racism issue, but like an economic issue? I don't know what system in agriculture you would consider racist. The economics of uh, first, uh, Maybe the education, availability of credit. Yeah, so you think times have changed? I do think times have changed. Uh, I see it sometimes. Uh, I don't see it as widespread as it used to be. Like the USDA and their loan program, they're more geared to making loans for those people who are struggling and, and, and having problems. I don't, I don't really know how to answer that. <laughs> I know. I'm sorry. These are tough questions. But... No, no. And, 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 they're, and they're appropriate questions. I mean, listen, I'll be very truthful. When, when I was a young child, there were, there were separate uh, waiting rooms for the white and the colored. And I guess my father taught me different. I never heard a racial word coming out of his mouth. He didn't believe in that. You got to remember, I grew up on this farm working with mostly back, black people. We took care of our people. There was a cook that my grandfather had, Miss Emma Lyons. As a young boy, I would go in the kitchen with her and she'd, uh, she'd sneak me ice cream out my, my grandfather's freezer from time to time. And those were some of the best times uh, that I had. So. Unlike a lot of other people, I grew up around black people all of my life and have a lot of respect for them. It's more about what's in the character of somebody's soul. I've seen the racism that you're talking about, but it never took hold it was, or it was never around my form or my family. You know, everybody has a, a, an opportunity if they want it. Uh, at least in the agricultural. Senator Alon also said that the mental health and physical stress that farmers and black families experience has nothing to do with race. It's hard to be a farmer, he says. And property laws in the state offer protection. Property rights in this state are, are pretty well embedded in the Louisiana Constitution. And it's, uh, you know, it's, it's pretty well spelled out. The poor and uneducated uh, are are always going to be vulnerable. After 25 years of research, 
Thomas Mitchell has concluded, it's just not true that there's equal opportunity for black people to generate wealth in Louisiana and the country as a whole. I think it's a narrative that a lot of people who are elite in this country and in a privilege, I think enables them to live comfortably and to think that maybe there were problems in the past. Maybe even some of their relatives in the past caused the problems, but that we're now free of that, which I just think, you know, it's fanciful. He says in his line of work, many families have written to him. They, for the most part, don't understand that there's, under the current law, there's no remedy. Mitchell drafted legislation called the Uniform Partition of Heirs Property Act to help disadvantaged families protect their wealth. So far, most states across the South have enacted this bill, including Mississippi and Alabama. But Louisiana hasn't yet. In the meantime, Eddie Lewis and the provost are embroiled in ongoing litigation, well aware of the challenges ahead. They're winning the race war. They have more money. They have more lawyers. They have more of them. They're winning. Lewis and the provost are hoping that the USDA's program to cancel debt for disadvantaged farmers can finally come through. But for others, like Robbie Bethel, there may not be much help available. I tried to get in touch with the Romeros, the family Bethel accused of stealing her land and fraudulently taking the mineral rights. Again, I didn't have much luck, but got a short phone call with Glenn Romero. He claims his father bought the land. Your father no, bought it? Yeah. He bought most of it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did y'all get any royalties from the oil and gas company? Never, never had anything except uh, we leased it one time. And they got, they got their money too, so. But Bethel says her family never got any of the royalties. She got her family's land put in her name in 2006 so she could pursue a lawsuit. But the legal process wasn't easy. One of her lawyers was disbarred. Another lawyer completely cut off communication with her and has held her essential documents hostage. The lawyers did not represent us the way that they they should have. And I truly think that um, they were bought off or scared off or whatever. But it, from the documents and the ruling, they were not, they did not represent our family. When Bethel finally took her case to court in 2018, the court said she took too long to start looking for evidence to prove her argument. And in 2019, with a new lawyer, the appeals court upheld that decision. How do you take too long when this occurred with my grandfathers to them and they had no recourse? I reached out to Chevron Texaco and they sent me this statement in an email. The lawsuit was without merit due to the simple fact that the Texas oil company never drilled a well on the plaintiff's property. They did not own land where revenue was being generated by our oil or gas production. Additionally, the plaintiffs waited more than 13 years to file their claim, well beyond the time allowed by law to initiate a case. Because of this, the trial court appropriately dismissed their lawsuit, and that decision was upheld by the Louisiana Third Circuit Court of Appeal. After reading the email a few times, it feels like those claims just don't add up. How can it be true that, on the one hand, they were never there, and that, on the other, she took too long to make her case that they were there? Bethel feels like that doesn't make any sense either, 
She believes she was cheated and that much of that has to do with her race. When I started this, it was then about making things right. And even today, it's about making things right. And I can't understand how the system was created to be so unequal. It's clear, as I sit in front of Bethel at her home, that this process has affected her for life. I can see her body shaking. She says she hasn't had one day. Where this is not on my mind. My family is not on my mind. Making sure that my grandson's okay. How they're going to go through college, you know, how they're going to live walking out the door. Like the provost in Lewis, Bethel says she's not planning to give up just yet. But as she sits looking out her window at West End, her neighborhood that was once a beacon of Black success and hope, but now completely abandoned, she knows that the society she's surrounded by isn't interested in seeing her thrive. I'm not tired. I'm I'm angry, but that anger, I suppress it. Because it's bigger than me. This is bigger than me. Today's episode was reported by Shalina Chatlani. We featured music from Lee Robinson of Nature's Eyes and John Cott of Ante Atlas, both found on Pixabay and used under a Creative Commons license. The Living Downstream theme music is by David Schulman. Thanks to This Week in Louisiana Agriculture. Chris Lee is radio executive producer, and Darren Lachelle is the president and CEO of Northern California Public Media. I'm Living Downstream founding producer Steve Mencher, and I was the story editor. Follow Living Downstream on Apple Podcasts, comment on it and rate it there, and find it wherever you get your podcasts. Find out more about us on NPR One. Visit our website at norcalpublicmedia.org living. And a lot of you are finding us on Spotify. Thanks. Living Downstream thanks our sponsors who make this podcast possible. A list is available at norcalpublicmedia.org.